and welcome to Let's Not Do That, a podcast about microaggressions on college campuses. I'm Tracy fernandez Rashavi. I am a lecturer at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay's Marinette Campus in English Literature, Creative Writing, and Women and Gender Studies. And my co-host... I'm Nate Ireland. I am a student of UW-Green Bay Marinette Campus, and I am a major in design arts. And Nate is also our intern for this podcast. <laughs> and I'd like to introduce you to our student co-host, Shannon Hernandez-Ribich, is a first-generation Mexican-American student at UWGB who loves to chat over good food more than anything. Her hobbies include reading, playing in the outdoors, and knitting. She hopes to graduate with an English degree and use writing to be part of the good work happening in the world. Hi, Shannon. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're so glad you're here. So we're going to start out just talking about what's going on in the world. And, you know, with our Let's Not Do That title, we're going to have a Let's Not Do That segment. Um, Shannon, you are going to be leading us in the, the bulk of our conversation today. So what is it that you would like people on campus, faculty, staff, and other students to not do? Um, you know, I would really love it if we could stop talking about people from developing countries as people who need um, pity. Oh, just, gosh. Just to put it in one sentence. Yeah, absolutely. So how have you experienced that in your life? Yeah. So, okay. So as a brief little um, background, uh, growing up, most of my family were largely undocumented. Um, and my generation um, were actually the first generation that was born in the U.S. So growing up, I kind of always um, knew that our life and the way that we went about it was different and not just mm -hmm. because of cultural differences, like something else was there. Um, and it, as a kid, I couldn't really um, pinpoint it or, or name it, I guess. Um, and as I got older um, and I kind of began to realize that some of those differences were actually um, challenges, like specific challenges that my family was facing because they were undocumented. Um, I became more open about sharing that um, with with other people. Um, and, you know, a lot of the responses that I got during that time, and I still do sometimes when I when I share about them, like unique situations, like, for example, um, for a while, my mom was living in Mexico, um, she self deported. And so I was working to um, petition on her behalf and get her into the United States with a green card. And so sometimes when I would share this situation with others, um, I often got this response of like, oh, that's just so, that's just so terrible. Or, oh, that's just so devastating. And, oh, and, and almost like this attitude of, um, of course she wants to come here. You know, this, this, this is the, this is the good place to be. Um, mm -hmm. you know, she's coming from an, a, a country that is, is not good. Um, and I guess what happened is, is that I accepted that, you know, I was like, oh yes, they're right. Like these poor, these poor people, like my family are, you know, these poor brown people. Um, and I started to believe that. And so then I started to perpetuate, you know, those stereotypes because, you know, I guess like what happened is that instead of me looking at my family um, and and understanding that some of the the challenges that they were going through, um, being able to look at it from a healthy or even like a holistic way, I I didn't because I just saw them as victims, you know, and so then that perpetuated that and I couldn't contribute to my family 
in a good way, I, I think at the time. And, and, and I believe those for myself as well, because since I was connected with them, I was that poor, that poor student, um, that poor person that, um, who was coming from an unfortunate situation. And so, yeah, I guess that's how it, how it affected me. I just believed it. And, um, I think I, I felt secondary, you know, like I was the other and my family were the other and we weren't on the same playing grounds. It it reminds me of kind of the controversy around American Dirt uh-huh. know, with Jan- Janine Cummins in the beginning of that uh, famously called people who are um, at the border in Mexico and the U.S. are a faceless brown mass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I... Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, and it just kind of, it, it it's dehumanizing. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think that also, you know, there's an imbalance of power that goes on when you view people like that. Um, and it's not productive or effective either. I think that's like the, the, the kicker of it all is that, you know, it, it also reduces, I think, you know, brown people to this is all they are almost like their story of, you know, tragedy or whatever. It it doesn't give them, you know, the dimension of, of people like they're so much more than that, you know, they're funny or they have dislikes and they have um, hobbies, favorite foods, you know, favorite things they like to do in their free time. Um, so yeah, and and then also I think that there's it, it makes it seem like there's nothing to learn from them, you know, like it's it's just very one-sided. Yeah. Or nothing beautiful in these countries that makes them hard to leave, you know, they're Yes. I, I've heard it described as trauma porn where people write or talk about those living in developing countries in particular as victims. And often in describing their own missionary work or other kind of, like you were saying, let's help those poor brown people, um, volunteer work, or otherwise just exploiting these stories to make them seem deep or edgy or giving. And it is it is deeply uncomfortable. My family is from Honduras on my mother's side, and, and there's so much that's wonderful about that country. And I've been going there since I was small, and then the the lens that I see it through sometimes in America is difficult. It's just like you, you're erasing so much that's really amazing about this country. Oh, yeah, that's really interesting that you bring that up because, I mean, I can't count the many times that, you know, if I say that I'm going to Mexico or if Mexico City gets brought up, you know, sometimes the reactions are very much like, oh, that's a very dangerous country or... Or, you know, I definitely wouldn't want to go there or, you know, and and it is interesting because I know it as not like that. You know, I'm I'm not saying that it doesn't have its dangerous areas like every city in the world. It has. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like Chicago and, you know, and New York City. And it it just comes with the territory that it's a bigger city. Um, But I don't I don't think of Mexico as dangerous. Like, that's not the word the word that comes to mind when I think of it. And so, um, yeah, it is, it is interesting when that, when I get those reactions and sometimes I even feel like I need to explain, you know, like, Oh no, it's, it's actually, you know, not like this. And, and, you know, where my family's from or whatever, you know? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you don't go out at night, you don't flash a bunch of jewelry, but otherwise it's fine. I, Honduras, unfortunately, yes. at least for a time, I'm not sure if it's still the case, was known as the murder capital of the world, largely because the police force is very sparse mm-hmm. and they don't have as many police as they should, I think. But you, it's not like you're going into the country and there's dead people everywhere. This is absolutely <laughs> not the case. It is you just don't be stupid and it's safe and it's beautiful and it's wonderful and it it it's horrible that that is so foremost in people's minds. Mm-hmm. That is so well said. Yes, <laughs> you're there's yeah you're not there aren't dead people just laying around. <laughs> exactly. Have you ever gone to explain like your experiences? with that and and people are surprised by that like that that the they aren't like they have thought for so long yeah i think i think i get a mixture of maybe a surprise and i think sometimes even like they still don't believe it you know a little right, bit like right, i see yeah. a little bit of the, like the disbelief in it like well that's not what i hear on the news kind of a thing um but yeah, I, I would say that's that's mainly the the response I get, and and yeah, so and and it doesn't really go beyond that. I think at least not in my own personal experience, it it's almost like it just gets dropped, you know, after a little bit, and mm-hmm. um, yeah. So they never really truly understand. They just kind of pass it off as like. I don't know. I don't know that they don't truly understand. I. I'm reluctant to make that call just in general when I talk with people because I feel like I always want to give them the benefit of the doubt, you know, that maybe it did, you know, maybe change some perspective for them. Um, But I guess I just I just mean that the conversation doesn't go further. Right. For sure. So on the on the subject of the those poor people like the the pity and and all that um do you think there's like a white savior element there as well Yeah I mean I think so I mean I you know like you were mentioning earlier I think sometimes there's you you want to feel good about it you want to feel like you're doing something um you know you want you want to do good and I think that is an instinctive feeling, I think, in humans that we want to do good. But I think sometimes it can be very dangerous and irresponsible, like in the case of of being, um, you know, having this mentality of being a white savior, whether you know it or not, because I don't think it's always conscious either. It's just, it, yeah, for some reason, unaware of of the issue. And I think what's interesting about the whole white savior element is that that is so far, you know, removed from what I believe is is necessary because what we really want is collaboration. And I think, you know, working to give access to the resources that that people need in order to thrive and have a dignified life. And so when you have that white savior element that just becomes then a one-sided relationship, you know, it's like this person helping this one. And and there's an imbalance of power there. There's the one giving and there's the one receiving and it's not accurate at all. And so, um, yeah, I think that's, there's definitely a little bit of that going on for sure. Right. I, I have always just kind of, braced myself when someone talks about doing missionary work, for example, or volunteer work in Honduras. And I I have to work on myself about that because I know that especially with when you go with a church, 
it's really motivated by a good place. It, it's motivated, yeah. yeah. It's just tough. Mm-hmm. It is. It's motivated by someone wanting to do something to help and, and seeing pictures of poverty. And I can blame that one on the media if that's all they show of these countries like Honduras. But uh, I've talked with students, for example, who have done missionary work when I, when I confess these things. And, and I say, you know, have you ever been on one that's more about a cultural exchange rather than helping those poor brown people? And I've had some say, yeah, yeah I went to one that it really was about learning from people and experiencing. They opened their homes to us. We had authentic food, you know, comida típica, as they would say in Honduras. <laughs> and... It was just really more about having the experience. Like, what can you do if you go down for a week to 10 days? It's really going to be that lasting. But you can help kind of pay the community for hosting you and and doing a little something to help and leave the place better than rather being a tourist and mowing over the environment and stuff. And then uh, they can give you something, too. And so it's like you were saying, Shannon, it's, it, it makes the balance of power more equal. Yeah, and I love that you called it a cultural exchange because I I think that that is that is just exactly I think what what is necessary, you know, with um missionary work but also with just good international development work, like it it needs to be this exchange of ideas. Um and yeah, I don't know. I guess I just think that when um, you're recognizing that that the country has something to offer to you. I think that that can help change the mentality that 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 it's not just you bringing in information or you bringing in material resources. That there's that that you have something to gain from this experience as well, and that they have something to offer, knowledge, skill, or story, or like in that situation, like their home, and so. Yeah, I think that's that that is so important. Absolutely. I th- I like the way you said that. Um so you and I have talked in the past about how people ignore the legacy of colonization and imperialism when it comes to particularly Latin America since that's where our experience of this is is happening. Can you share a little bit about how that how you see that working? Yeah, so um again, I'm just going to go into a little brief background here. So I was in El Salvador for a year, um, and I don't claim to know Salvadoran history, like, you know, it's in in its entirety. Um, But when I was down there and I got to talk to some friends and um, some coworkers um, and reading on their history, um, I learned some things for the first time that I didn't know before. So, for example, you know, they had a decade-long civil war um, that was backed by the U.S. government and that they backed the Salvadoran government and the Salvadoran government committed some really terrible atrocities, really, that I that I think violated human rights. And, you know, a lot of people were displaced during that time in the country and um, a lot of them did flee to the United States and gangs actually originated in the U.S. And then when that civil war ended, the U.S. deported um, some of these people that had been involved in gangs. They deported them to a country that was just coming out of, um, you know, a, a, a civil war. So the infrastructure just wasn't there. And so now that that is a that is a big problem in El Salvador. Um, and so I had no idea about any of this. And so 
you know, and that, and then, you know, to go on to that, we're seeing, you know, what people are calling the Central American migration crises. Obviously, it's not just this one event that is, I think, a catalyst in the situation, but you see how that has played into, you know, maybe some of the current situations or some of the current challenges that um, the country is facing. And so I guess I just feel like when we ignore history like this, or when we don't take the time to find out more or acknowledge it, then, then, then that, that perpetuates that, um, the, the poor people from El Salvador, you know what I mean? Because we're not like looking at the full picture. We're not seeing how, um, our country that is very powerful in such a global world, how, how much that is, you know, has an effect. And, so and so then I I guess I also feel like people maybe feel less inclined to feel like they have a responsibility towards the situation because it's like it feels maybe maybe they don't maybe they think it's removed from them. Mm-hmm. Um and so so I think that history and that imperialism is so important because it's it it has impacted where they stand. Um so so yeah it's just I it's just important to recognize that history because it really comes full circle here. It's not like some of the present issues that we're seeing are just these isolated events, you know, there there's cause and effect here. Mm-hmm. And so that's why it's so important I think to really look at that legacy um because we've had a part in it, at least our country has had a part in it. And so we live in this country. So, you know, so yeah, that, those are just some of my thoughts on that. Yeah, it's very, very powerful examples that you gave. I was just thinking about Jennifer De Leon, who was a guest on our campus, uh, on the Green Bay campus a, a couple of weeks ago. She wrote a book called White Space, and she's Guatemalan American, and she was talking about very, very similar issues, just the civil war in Guatemala being catalyzed in, in, a, in part by the U.S. government wanting a regime change. Mm-hmm. And so they go and they catalyze this, and it just wreaks havoc, of course, on society there. And the, the government that took over wasn't necessarily wanting to do good things for people after that. And so it was very, very powerful to read that in, in white space, too. And I think a lot of different countries in Latin America and around the world have similar stories. And so some of the fact that they are developing countries, maybe because some of these former colonizers have come in and just wreaked havoc there. Yeah. And, and companies, too. Honduras has a history with Chiquita Banana that is very complex and I won't go into here. Yes. But, yeah. Yeah. And... And I think something that's, I think, worth noting as well is that that continues to happen, you know, maybe not in the in in the similar way, but, you know, we still have large corporations in the U.S. that um, I think are, are influencing or having a negative impact on people in other parts of the world. I mean, I don't know if I you feel free to edit this out, <laughs> but I guess I, I just feel that you don't get to be such a powerful country with, at the, without it being at the expense of another country, you oh, know, yeah. like you've always been like that. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, there's always going to have, you're, there are, there are always going to be the core countries and then the peripheral countries. And like, I mean, imperialism, that's how it works. So. Yeah. And that's why it's so important, I think, when you go down and visit some of these developing countries to not stay at an American chain or a European chain hotel or something to go to the locally owned hotels, to go to 
um, even the Airbnbs, mm -hmm. and make sure your money is going into the community when mm -hmm. you eat, when you shop, and, yeah. and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So how do you feel when people use the term the illegals to discuss undocumented immigrants? To us, it always feels like they're talking about roaches and not people. Mm -hmm. Oh, man. I just think that the word illegals, illegals is not an accurate representation at all. Because, well, for one, I mean, it has the negative connotation. Um, and I think it also portrays a very black and white situation. Like, oh, illegals. Like, illegal people means that they don't belong here, they shouldn't be here, et cetera, et cetera. Um, whereas, I think using a word like undocumented makes way more sense because I think it encompasses like the nuances of a person that's undocumented. You know, it's like these are people that are contributing to the U.S. economy, first of all. Um, and these are people that are living here and they have children that are going to school here, um, but they don't have they're undocumented. So with that come challenges. So I, it's just such a more humanizing word. You know, when you use something like the illegals, it just doesn't even, it just doesn't even capture accurately what's going on. So on top of it, just being not a nice word, in my opinion, and, and kind of having a negative feeling, like it's just inaccurate. So it just doesn't make sense either. Yeah, absolutely. And I, it just, yeah, I get so uncomfortable when I hear it, or illegal alien, you know, it's just, it's so dehumanizing. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. a funny story about that word, my dad, for his wind-down job, he used to work with farmers' cooperatives, managing farmers' cooperatives, and then his wind-down job before retirement was as a vice president of a, a farmer's loan um, credit union. Uh huh. And so he would go and he would talk to farmers about their, you know, the loans that they needed. And one had conversations about the illegals with him. And then when the government started cracking down on on undocumented immigrants in recent years, my dad went and visited him again, and he was all worried about losing his Honduran actually farm workers because of the <laughs> crackdown. And yes. And they were undocumented. You know, he wasn't giving, helping them get work visas, and that was how he kept things affordable. So it's not even that it's necessarily the workers' fault. They are, they are being pulled here by, you know, employers that are citizens of America, employers who want to save some money. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And sometimes they're lured here. I I talked to I've talked to people before who've been lured here with the promise of a work visa, and then their passport gets taken away, and they're almost in a slavery situation. Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. Hopefully that's more rare, but still, you know, it's just people get so angry about undocumented immigrants and don't think about what causes this, who's bringing them over, right, right. who's right. not helping them get work visas, that kind of thing. That word almost makes it seem like it's their fault, like they're actively trying to do something wrong when, oh, yeah. when right. it's, mm -hmm. it's not, that, not the case. Yeah, the national yeah. conversation never includes the employers. It's always just about the immigrants themselves. Yeah, that, that is a very interesting thing to point out, for sure. <laughs> So, you know, because you've had you've had um your your mom you were talking about being undocumented and, and mm -hmm. getting her green card and everything, um, what do you want people to know 
what else do you want people to know about undocumented immigrants and why they come to the U.S.? You know, I, earlier just now when you said that um, you were talking about how they're lured to the U.S., um, something that came to mind is my so my grandparents and my mom and my uncle came to the U.S. Um, you know, back in the late '80s, early '90s. So when they came, it wasn't it wasn't you know it like a situation in that case where they were lured by a specific employer, but they were definitely told that they would have a better life here, you know, that they're, that they're coming, um, because they, they believe that there will be better education for their children because they believe that they, they would have better financial security, that they would be able to, um, do better for themselves and not just themselves, but their families back, you know, back where, where they're coming from. And they do come almost like with this hope and, and this promise. And, um, they, they, and I also want to talk about, or just mention that the journey of crossing the border is not a joke. <laughs> like, it's not like someone's gonna, it's not the kind of journey that you make on a whim. And it's also very expensive because you have to hire someone that's going to help you cross. And, um, that can be a couple thousand dollars and a couple thousand dollars for maybe us, especially now, maybe doesn't sound like a lot, but back in the early nineties and for people that, um, are on the peso, it's very expensive. And so, so you make that journey, that difficult journey, and you, you mitigate your risks and you think it's worth it. And so, yeah, I, I guess that, that always, I always just think of that, you know, that that journey is hard and that you're risking a lot. Um, but you believe that wherever you're going is worth that risk. So, um, yeah, I think all my family members that have come, have come under that guise, under that promise. And, um, that's what I can say about my own personal family. I know, like I said, when I was down in El Salvador and I was talking to some friends and, um, they, you know, they often, uh, so it gets complicated. I don't want to make this super long, but, you know, often they're fleeing, um, violence, they're fleeing death threats, they're fleeing, um, financial insecurity. Um, you know, I was recently reading an article about a farming family in Guatemala, actually, and they were just, you know, because of climate change, like they can't really rely on their crops in the same way anymore. And so they were considering going up north, as you know, they said, so coming to the US. So there are a lot of factors that are contributing to why people are leaving, but it's not like the challenges aren't real enough that they aren't willing to take that risk. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think people forget that this is home yes. and it is so hard to leave home. I mean, home is beautiful in yeah. a lot of cases and, and warm. And there are so many things to miss your community, the food, the sunshine, and it's hard it's very, very hard to leave home. And so this is not just some garbage place that you should be glad to leave. They're not at all. I'm so glad that you said that because it's true. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I don't always think that my family necessarily 
I mean, they always talk about the good things back home. You know, they always talk about the things that they miss. So I, yeah, thank you for bringing that up because that is that I don't think that always gets um, enough attention. I guess. Yeah, I think so. I Warsan Shire wrote a poem that made the rounds of on the internet a couple of years ago, but it's called Home. And the first line of it is, "No one leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark." Mm-hmm. And it that to me is just so powerful and says everything. You know, you it's home. Mm-hmm. It's hard to leave. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So on the uh, on the subject of a lot of how people view and talk about these issues. Um, how do older generations in your family members feel about about that? How how people react and say these things about this? I, you know, I think they just, they feel misrepresented. You know, I think they feel misunderstood. At least that's what I've heard, you know, like what I've heard them express. Um... And I think they're always on guard a little bit. I think they always, you know, at least, and again, this is just my perception of it, but I, I, I sometimes get the feeling that they they have to, like, defend themselves. They always have to be ready to defend, like, their, their um, position in this country, why they're here, and whether they're hard workers or not, you know? I That's a big one, for sure. Um you know, something interesting that my grandpa said to me recently, we, the American dream got brought up and he said, well, there was an American dream, but that doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> and maybe I'm more cynical because I thought it never did, but and I, didn't, right. I, didn't, I didn't say that to my grandpa, uh, but it was interesting that he was saying that. And I think that now that they're older and they've been here for so, so many years and, um, and especially for my grandpa, he, for complex reasons he's not documented yet my grandmother is and they're married but he's not and so I think for him it's like and I think for both of them too but I I think for for him it's they've gotten to this point in their lives and they've been here like I said since the late 80s and it's almost like it it this this life here isn't what they thought it was going to be when they first left is often the impression I get and and it was just kind of sad to hear him say that, you know, and um, so, yeah, and, you know, I also growing up, I would often hear as well from my grandparents when they would talk about family back home because they would send money back home. And so I think sometimes they felt like the family back home didn't understand the life here that that. And and what I gathered when they would say that is that it's it's that life isn't easy just because you're in the U.S. now, that it's that it's challenging that you're working a lot and that you're working at a wage that is not high <laughs> at all and right right and you're having to you know be afraid of whether um, immigration is going to get called on you or you're just living that fear so. Um, so I think when they when they hear some of these things or they see some of those things on the news, like I know that with our last president, you know, he would sometimes say things that were just really not sometimes he said things that were awful. <laughs> and um, that was really, I think, hurtful for them to hear, um, because I think that they've felt like they've been 
combating some of these stereotypes since they've been here and it's just mm-hmm. a, another one and so um yeah i it definitely feels almost like they're in this like sobering reality <laughs> right now at, at least cuz you know they're at that point of retirement and um I recently helped my grandmother do her retirement. So obviously my grandpa can't because he's not documented, but we did my grandmother's and uh, she was concerned about how much she was going to get in part because um, she was only going to get um, retirement for the amount of time that she's been um, documented. So for all the, you know, decade plus years that she worked here, she, you know, she can't, she doesn't get anything from that. And so, um, you know, some of those realities, I think were really hard for my grandparents, even though they've known that it was coming. Oh gosh. Wow. That's really powerful. Yeah. So Shannon, you're in your first year of university. Have any of these conversations come up in the classroom or is there anything that professors can do to better address some of the kind of conversations and issues we're talking about? So my concern is that students who are immigrants or who are not, who are undocumented or have undocumented family members feel more like the university is their campus home. So what can your professors do, basically? Um, I think always, like for me, representation has proven to be very helpful. Um, and I know that sounds really vague, but I do think it's important. So I think that... Um, I think there are ways to talk about it as well, like bringing it into um, classroom lessons, maybe, and not making it the focus. But I, I don't know. Like, I think that it is possible to talk about current events um, organically in in classes. And I'm not really sure, like, how that would happen. But I think to keep that in mind of, of how can I um, talk about some of these issues, because they are relevant Um, But also, like, I don't know, I think it's helpful when you don't, if it's not targeted either, because I think sometimes when it's targeted, it feels like you're in the spotlight. Like, even though they're not addressing you specifically, you look around and you might not be, there might not be that many people who this is applicable to as like a lived Mm -hmm. experience. So, um, so I don't know, I guess, yeah, and and using language that is... um, like some of the things that we were just talking about, like re- referring from using words like illegal immigrants and maybe saying undocumented, um, like adopting that language, um, because that, that language has the power to, I think, really create a different kind of atmosphere. Um, and, and yeah, definitely representation. Like I know whenever I read something, a story, a novel or short story, or even, um, something that involves someone that is shares a similar background to me or one that I can relate to that's always really powerful and I feel like I belong um or like that like my type of background is important and it can be part of discourse um even if that's not like the focus of course but um if it's like the writer or if it's the um anthropologist or the sociologist or um whatever Yeah, that's interesting that you bring that up. I had a conversation in a class last summer with a friend who is is a white male, and he said that, and we're both literature instructors at at smaller universities, 
And he said he was worried about teaching works by writers of color because he felt like as a white man, he shouldn't be the one pretending to be the authority on their voices. And we were reading Bell Hooks at the time, and she, you know, she's a, a black feminist uh, writer who writes a lot on pedagogy or the, the teaching processes and she said that you absolutely should you know that you should yes you should and so would you you would agree with that yes and I actually I recently read an article by her I was just introduced to her she's awesome Mm -hmm. um but yeah I, I think you need to I mean because you don't need to approach the situation as having authority you know like you don't need to be that authority or that person that has the knowledge like you don't have to pretend to do that. It's best that you don't, but it is still important to bring those stories in. And because you can, it's almost like a, a process of learning together. And in just to give that space for it, I think is so valuable. And it makes it, I think, less scary or less like, oh, I don't want to say the wrong thing. It it opens it up to to be curious, to learn and, and to be thoughtful. Um in it as you're learning as you're engaging and as you're you know coming up with new new ideas or new ways of looking at the world and um i the article that i read with her she was talking about the importance of of talking about your personal stories and how there have been um people in academia that have said that this is not the place for it or you know etc but that she was arguing that, yes, you do need to talk about these personal stories because this is what is going to um, make like make that change. Like if you if you're not like bringing these in and 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 making them as like um, as accurate representations because they're the truth, like they are accurate representations, like you can't really, you know, you can't really move without that. And so, yeah, I agree that they definitely have a place in the classroom. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that'd be really encouraging to for someone who is having those reservations, which come from a really good and generous place. Absolutely. Yeah. But it's it's like you don't, as a literature professor in particular, you know, since that's what the two of us are, it's important to not perpetuate the idea that the literary canon is a bunch of white guys. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean... Oh, man, I remember the first time I read like the house on Mango Street and being Mm like, oh, my gosh, you know, it was so revolutionary to me at the time because I was so young and I hadn't read anything that I that I could, you know, share in, you know, at least at that point, like the literature that I had been exposed to, um, you know, all the houses were two floor houses. And it was really just nice to read about people that had grandparents that lived in a house and um I don't know I, yeah it just definitely adds that sense of of belonging like my story is not so different like it's mm-hmm. it's a it's part of it's part of something yeah all right so um wrapping up what would you like other students to know just generally um, you know that it's that even if it's scary, the idea of engaging because you want to, you're, you're, you don't want to say the wrong thing. You don't want to offend someone. Um, it's so it's to, to not be afraid, I guess, to not be afraid of not knowing and that, that this is what it's all about. And that if we lead with openness and compassion, 
um, I think that good, good stuff can happen. And, and to just not make assumptions, you know, to go into mm-hmm. things with a willingness to be a student. I think that having that willingness to be a, a student of any situation is always, I think, like so helpful in life. But um, yeah, to just keep that mentality and, and, and to not be afraid. And yeah, I guess that's, that's what I'd say. I love that advice. And I also want to call back something that you said earlier about language being powerful, because I think especially when we're young, we don't really realize, and I cannot include myself as young anymore, but we don't really (laughs) realize that language can be so hurtful that one word like illegals can really be painful and can make someone feel like an outsider, like they don't belong, like their campus, for example, is not their home. (laughs) And, Mm -hmm. And so to really do your best with the language that you use to be, use language that's kind and that doesn't dehumanize. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, thank you for adding that because I think sometimes, you know, we use language every single day and we're just like speaking all the time to communicate with our friends, with our family, we're like communicating on paper. And so I think sometimes you just don't even think about it, you know, because it just is part of everyday life. And so, um, yeah, I think it's important to think of the words that we're using. Yeah. And I think some media personalities tend to minimize it saying, oh, that's just political correctness. But it really is just about being kind to people and making them feel like they belong in so many cases. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much, Shannon. I really appreciate your talking with us. And the rest of you who are out there listening don't know this, but Shannon was very, very patient with us as we figured out our technology <laughs> oh for our very first episode. Oh so goodness. bless oh, you for that. No worries at all. I mean, thank you so much for asking me to be a part of this. I think it's wonderful what you two are doing and so needed to have these conversations. And I do not mind waiting at all. So. <laughs> You are wonderful. Thank you. So, but you are going to join us for our last segment. Um, yeah. And we're we're talking about this last segment is called Here's One Good Thing. And so we wanted to end on a positive note, right, Nate? Absolutely. Because um, with all this talk of um, hatred and, and, and uh, misunderstanding in the world, it's nice to, nice to focus on the good things, you know? Absolutely. So <laughs> Shannon, as our guest, would you want to start and tell us what your one good thing is? Yeah. Um, so recently I started reading uh, this book called Brown Girls by Daphne Palasi Andreadis. I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly. Um, but it, this has been such a fun read for me. I didn't, I wasn't sure what to expect, but um, it's been... So I'll give you this brief synopsis of the book. It, I've, I've heard that it's been called a love letter to brown girls. And I would completely agree with that. So it follows um, a couple of girls living in Queens, New York, and it just follows them from the time that they're 10 all the way into their adult life. And what's interesting about the book is that it's written in this first person plural um, person. So uh, she uses the we in throughout the entire book, and you never go into the specifics of one girl. but it's 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 okay. It works, I think, in the novel because it kind of feels like there's this collective voice that is happening, and I think that was the author's intention. Um, but it's not a generalization either. Like I, it's it does such a good job at um, 
using that we sound and the word brown girls or the words brown girls to still show just the diversity in that word and how expansive it can be. But at the same time, there's like this sisterhood almost element going on with it. And so for me reading this, I feel cared for. <laughs> like I, you know, obviously my life in Sheboygan, Wisconsin was very different than in Queens, New York, but I still feel like a connection to it. Like I still feel like a sense of um, identity there. So it's just been really sweet to me. And, um, and these are girls that, uh, you know, are going through things and they're dealing, yeah, with microaggressions, but they also have other interests and they and they they kind of all come into their own successes in different ways and so yeah i have been really enjoying this book and i recommend it to anyone out there who's interested in a new book thank you i have not i've not read this one so i will definitely have to put it on my list it sounds wonderful yeah that sounds intriguing i actually i love how that sounded the, the the idea behind the the we sounds yeah. really intriguing i like that yeah it's very unique. So yes. there... go ahead. Sorry, Nate. Yeah, no, were you gonna were you gonna finish? What was up? No, no, I was just gonna ask if you had anything anything good happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I uh I've been watching this show um on, on HBO Max. It's called Our Flag Means Death. And it is about a man named Steve Bonnet. Um he lived during the golden age of piracy. It's a comedy show. It's it's very, very, very loosely based off of his actual life. And the show has a very, very rich portrayal of um, queer relationships as very casual. And that's not something that you get from a lot of shows nowadays. That's, it's usually you get what's called queer baiting. And, and they use it as kind of almost as like, like a weaponized form of like, look what we have on our show, you know. Um, but this show does not fall into that category. It's got a very casual, very slow burn relationship between two very important characters. And I think it's very awesome. The cast is very diverse. Um, they handle a lot of issues very well. And it's just a very enjoyable, very wholesome show. And I like it a lot. You're the second person to recommend that show to me. I really need to check it out. It's I love very Pirates. Good. I, yeah. I, it's got some yeah. actors and some some producers from another show I adore. It's um, called What We Do in the Shadows, okay. and it's it's in a similar vein. It's 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 a comedy show. Um, it handles a lot of stuff really well, but it's about vampires. So it's a oh. mockumentary, <laughs> like like a like a documentary crew is coming into this um, this vampire den and they're like interviewing all the vampires and stuff like that. But but yeah, anyway, this one's about pirates. Um, the the main character, Steed Bonnet, he's like he was a wealthy landowner and he gave it all away because he wanted to be a pirate. And it's just very fun and I enjoy it a lot. I have to oh. check that out. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you for sharing. Definitely want to look into that <laughs> yeah so i'm going to go back to the books i really am going to try to be more diverse i i, I tend to gravitate toward books when people ask me about <laughs> my entertainment recommendations or good things um but i recently read a book called angie brown and i have it with me because there are a lot of names on here but it's angie brown the subtitle is a jim crow romance and you really wouldn't think of these two things going together um, it is by a woman named Lillian Jones Horace, and it was written uh, a few decades ago, but and then it was kind of lost. I think it did fine, and then it was lost. One of those books that just faded away, wasn't reprinted. And then um, Dr. Karen Kasi Chernyshev uh, recovered this book. And so it was republished again by Outskirts Press. 
And uh, I just read it in a class that I'm in for my PhD program, and I really, really loved it. And what I loved about it is uh, Angie's romance is not so is not so much with another person. It's really a romance with herself in a lot of ways. And it's it acknowledges the horrific stuff that went on during the Jim Crow era, the era of segregation, mm-hmm. lynching, um, you know, economic inequities that are exacerbated by racism, racism. And and just all of that awful stuff is definitely part of it. But Angie practices what um, you know Michonne Benson talks about in the introduction to this book as revolutionary patience. And so it's really interesting to see like you have a lot of white men in this book who are racist who are um, targeting black men, but because they already feel like they dominate black w- women the women can fly under the radar, which is what Angie does. And she goes and she creates opportunities for herself by kind of ignoring the ugliness around her, not not ignoring and as in failing to acknowledge it. But when someone directs racism at her or microaggression, she just is patient and sits back and is like, well, I've got to keep my eyes on the bigger picture. And so she goes through, you know, she goes through different jobs. She's she's kind of a a janitor type character in a, a massage salon. And then she parlays that into getting money for beauty school and she saves and she's really careful with her money. She goes to beauty school and then she sees that really it's difficult for black women to find someone to do their hair because the white salons won't serve them in this era. So she opens up a black salon with black beauticians serving black women. And, you know, she goes to on a road trip to up north and they're, they need to stay somewhere. They're tired in the middle of the night, and they keep being turned away because they're black of these roadside hotels. And so she opens up a roadside hotel for the black community so they can. And so it's about caring for herself and caring for the community through exercising her economic power. And even though it, it's like you don't want someone to have to take the kind of stuff she had to take, but you really just have to admire her for keeping her eyes on her goals and in a, such a difficult era showing the definition of success, which is a lot of what Lillian Jones Horace, I think, did in her own life, being a writer, a published writer. So it just made me, it was, it was a happy read. It's a, you know, it has its difficult moments, but I really, really enjoyed it. Oh, I love that. Yeah, Yeah, definitely on the book recs list for sure. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So that is it for this episode. Again, thank you so much, Shannon, for joining us. Oh, no, thank you two for having me. This was so fun. Join us in a week or two. We have to figure that out yet for our next episode with another student guest co-host. And we'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Bye.